theyeshiva.net. Heichel Menachem presents A Tale of Two Souls, an ongoing lecture series on the Tanya by Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Jacobson. This is the first tape in the series entitled The Life and Times of Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, recorded live at Heichel Menachem, Brooklyn, New York. Good morning and welcome to uh, our new series of classes on the Tanya of Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, entitled A Tale of Two Souls. 200 years ago, in the year 5557, or corresponding to 1796, the Tanya was published for the first time. Its 4,000 editions since have invigorated the Jewish world with a message of informed inspiration. In this brief but foundational classic, Rabbi Schneir Zalman articulated the Chabad school of Hasidic thought, fusing the rational and mystical streams of Torah into a unified, comprehensive program for life. But before we actually begin studying the Tanya, allow me to preface with a brief biography of the life and times of the author, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, or, or, or as he is known among Lubavitcher Hasidim, the Alter Rebbe, the Elder Rebbe, being as he was the founder and the first Rebbe of the Chabad Lubavitch dynasty. Parenthetically, this is the reason why the family name of the Lubavitcher Rebbe is Schneer's son, the son of Schneer. Needless to say, in order that these classes be a meaningful learning experience, both for you and I, dialogue is very important. So all questions, objections, disagreements, and exchange of ideals, ideas, and feelings will be strongly welcomed in these classes. Since, however, can I inhara, there is a large crowd, I will stop several, several times during the class to take questions. Schneider Zalman was born on Chai Elul, the 18th day of Elul, in the year 5505, corresponding to September 1745 in Lyazhna, a small town in White Russia to his parents, Rebaruch and Rebetzin Rivka. As a young child, he displayed a phenomenal grasp in Taylor studies. The young Shnei Zalman was a child prodigy par excellence, to the extent that at his bar mitzvah celebration, the greatest scholars entitled him Rav Tano Palik, which means he is equal in status to the scholars of previous generations and is entitled to disagree with them. His sons testify in their introduction to his code of law, which, will we, which we will discuss later on, that at the age of 18, he was proficient in the entire Talmudic literature with all its commentaries and early and late codifiers. At the same time, Shnei Zalman studied the classics of Jewish philosophy and Kabbalah and also mastered the disciplines of the sciences, mathematics, geometry, astronomy, and so on and so forth. In the year 1760, he married Rebetzin Sterna Segel from a nearby city, Vitebsk. Four years later, at the age of about 20, Shnei Zalman decided to leave home for a period of time in search of a mentor and teacher in search of a personal Rebbe. 
two centers of learning beaconed his attention. One was Vilna, the Lithuanian capital, the center of Talmudic scholarship with the famed Gaon of Vilna, Rebellio at its head. The Gaon was recognized as the greatest authority on the Talmud and Jewish learning in his day. He held no official position, interestingly, but his fame was widespread. He excelled also in Kabbalah and has written numerous works in every one of these fields. The other center of learning was Mizrich, the seat of Rabbi Daivber, the Maggid of Mizrich, ear to Rabbi Yisrael Balshemtiv, the founder of the Hasidic movement. After the passing of the Balshemtiv on Shavuos in the year 1760, Rabbi Daivber assumed leadership of the young Hasidic movement. So Rabbi Shnei Zalman had in front of him Vilna and Mizrich, a tale of two cities. For Rabbi Shnei Zalman, Mizrich was both geographically and intellectually the more distant place. For he had, heard, but he had heard about the great scholarship of the Magid, and he has heard about the teachings of Hasidism, which illuminated and deeply enhanced the divine service of the Jew. So Reb Zalman was forced to make a momentous choice. It is recorded that Reb Zalman said at the time, I have already been exposed to Talmudic discipline. I have yet to learn the discipline of prayer. And he decided in favor of Mizrich. This decision was, of course, the turning point of his life. His first impressions upon coming to Mizrich were not encouraging at all. Shnei Zalman closely observed the Maggid of Mizrich and his senior disciples, and he discovered that they devoted considerable time to the daily prayers and to preparation before the prayers, inevitably reducing time left for Torah study. To the great intellectual and powerful mind that he was, this emphasis and prayer seemed extravagant. He decided that Mizditch was not for him. As Nezaman left Mizditch, he remembered that he had forgotten something in the base Medrash in the study hall of the Magid. Returning there, he found that the Magid was engaged in the examination of a deep halacha question. What happened? A man entered into the base Medrash with a along of a slaughtered kosher animal. Now, anyone over here familiar with the laws concerning the kashras of a and the laws of Trefus and Shulchanarach is well aware of their extremely complex and nuanced nature. The brilliant analysis that the Magid displayed in all aspects of this question conveyed to the Shnei Zalman the brilliant erudition and mastery of the Magid and fields of Halacha and made a very powerful impression and impact on him and he decided to stay a while longer in Mizrich. Thereupon, the Magid told Shnei Zalman that his saintly master, the Balshemtiv, had revealed to him that one day the son of Rabbi Baruch would come to him, would leave him, and then return again. And then he was to tell him the great destiny that was linked to his Shnei Zalman's soul. The Baal further predicted the Magad related to the Shnei Zalman, that his path in life would be hazardous and it would be fraught with many, many challenges and difficulties from within and from without. But that he, the Baal would intercede on his behalf and on behalf of his followers so his end would be exceedingly great.
Reb Shnei Zalman was, of course, very deeply moved by what he heard, and he decided to cast in his lot with the new Hasidic movement. Soon, new horizons began to unfold before him. Reb Shnei Zalman remained in Mizritch for 18 months, in which he grew to become one of the greatest pupils of his Rebbe, after which he returned to his home in Vitebsk. Following that, he would visit his master periodically. An interesting story is told. Once, Ipshnei Zalman was preparing to leave Mizritch after a prolonged stay with his Rebbe, the Rebbe Dave Bear. Rabbi Dave Ber's son, the famed Rabbi Avram, who was known by the Hasidim as Rabbi Avram HaMalach, Rabbi Avram, the angel, came to see him off. As the coach was about to set off, Rabbi Shnei Zalman hears Rabbi Avram say to the coachman, Shmeiz deferred biz as his own vissin as his anferd. Whip those horses so that they should know that they are horses. Another version goes, Whip those horses until they cease to be horses. For Shnei Zalman, this remark opened a new vista in man's service of Hashem. He decided that he has to remain in Mizritch a while longer to digest it, to internalize it within his life. In 1767, Shnei Zalman was summoned to become a Magid, which means spiritual mentor and teacher in his hometown, Liyajna, he accepted the post which he held for the next 30 years until he moved to Liadi in 1801, as will be mentioned later on. Despite his young age, Rupshnei Zalman, or the Litvak, as he was known among his friends, being as he was a native of Lithuania, became one of the greatest pupils and disciples of the Magid. The Magid recognized the unique mental capacity of Rabbi Zalman, and in 1770 assigned him the task of authoring a new and updated version of the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch. Needless to say, it was an enormous and responsible task requiring extraordinary erudition and mastery of the entire Talmudic and halachic literature as well as the ability to make decision in disputed cases. Rabbi Zalman superbly acquitted himself of this task which at once immensely enhanced his reputation in the rabbinical world and gave him an honored place among the great codifiers of Jewish law until this very day. And the work became known as the Rav Shulchan Aruch. Two years later, he began to work on a system of Chabad philosophy which was eventually embodied in his Lakute Amarim or Tanya, which we commence learning this morning. After the passing of the Magad on the 19th of Kislev, 1772, the Hasidim accepted the leadership of Rabbi Nachemendel of Haradak, one of the senior students of the Magad, but this does not last long. For in the year 1777, Rabbi Nachemendel, accompanied by a large group of Hasidim, made Aliyah to the Holy Land as the result of the persecutions the Hasidim experienced. From their fierce opponents, the Misnagdim, whose stronghold was in Lithuania, nearby Rabbi Menachem Mendel's place of residence. You're asking a very good question. 
what was the cause and the nature of this opposition, and does it exist till today? I will attempt to address the question briefly. The Hasidic movement encountered in its formative years very fierce opposition from many Jews known as the Misnagdim, the opponents. The Misnagdim, led primarily by the famed Gaon of Vilna mentioned earlier, feared that the new movement is creating a breach in Yiddishkeit and in the halachic tradition. In addition to this, there existed some fundamental differences of opinion between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim and some of the essential Kabbalistic doctrines. In fact, in the year 1775, Rabbi Shnei Zalman accompanied his senior colleague, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Haradak to Vilna, to meet the Gaon and attempt to restore the peace within the Jewish community of Eastern Europe. Twice they unsuccessfully sought an audience with the Gaon. The Gaon refused to accept them, and the conflict continued through the following decades. Saying this, however, it should be emphasized that all of this has changed drastically in the following generation, in which the suspicions about Hasidim, so prevalent in the years before, has withered and faded away. Hence, even those Jews who in a variety of issues differed considerably from their Hasidic brethren have often created, created strong bonds with the Hasidim and their masters, working closely together in many areas of Jewish life. Even those sages and scholars, in other words, who opposed, for example, the study of Hasidus, and did not identify with some of the Hasidic customs, possessed nonetheless an immense respect towards the Hasidic masters, including, of course, those of the Lubavitch dynasty, and conversely so. In any case... Following the migration of Rabbi Nachmendel to Eretz Yisrael, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman was appointed leader of the Hasidim in White Russia and Lithuania. However, Rabbi Shneir Zalman refused to accept the leadership in an official capacity as long as a senior colleague lived, despite the latter's repeated appeals. Only after Rabbi Nachmendel's passing in 1788 that he accept the leadership officially. In the meantime, the Alter Rebbe was actively engaged in developing, teaching, writing, and disseminating the Hasidic doctrines. During his extensive travels, many, many followers were attracted to him, not only from the masses, but from the ranks of scholars as well. The Alter Rebbe established a school of selected disciples in his own town in Lyajna. The students were divided into three groups, three chadarim, and many of them became distinguished scholars and rabbis. The chadarim established by the Alter Rebbe in Liazhna during the years 1773 through 1778 admitted only selected students of high scholastic ability for intensive studies both in Talmud and in Hasidus. To give you an example of the nature of these Chadarim that Shnei Zalman established. Let me say this. To be admitted into the first Cheder, the first and highest level of the Alter Rebbe's Yeshiva, one had to master by heart the entire Shas, the complete Talmudic literature, and the Midrash, 
as well as the two major works of Jewish philosophy, the Kuzari of the 12th century Rabbi Yehuda Alevi, and the Ikarim of the 14th century Rabbi Yosef Albo. In addition, one had to have a fluency in the fundamental Kabbalistic work, the Zayir of Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai. Admission to the other two Chadarim required a bit lower standards. This yeshiva of higher learning existed for 20 years and produced students, disciples, and pupils of extraordinary caliber. caliber. People who were masters of Torah with powerful minds and passionate hearts, open, well-rounded personalities, developed fully emotionally and intellectually, true spiritual men, who were nonetheless not aloof or otherworldly, but warm, concerned, vital, sensitive, and refined in character, scholarly yet sociable, earnest, but not humorless or somber, deeply committed, but not unctuous or pietistic, modest, but self-confident, devoted to Reb Shnei heart and soul, but fully capable of thinking and feeling for themselves. These Hasidim personified the profound and paradoxical system that came to be known as Chabad Hasidus, an all-embracing world outlook and way of life, which sees the Jew's central purpose as the unifying link between the Creator and creation. Reb Zalman, his influence kept on increasing and accelerating his disciples, particularly this above-mentioned students of the seminars, branched into a variety of towns and townlets in Eastern Europe, in Russia, White Russia, Lithuania, and other countries, establishing spearheads for further expansion wherever the scholarly disciples of Reb Shnei Zalman were actively disseminating the teachings of Hasidus, the ranks of the Alter Rebbe's followers swelled with new followers, and so it continued to accelerate and grow. Now, we come to the publication of the Tanya. The author worked on this seminal work intermittently for 20 years, writing and revising it in several editions and elaborating its style and form so punctuously that it came to be regarded by his followers as the Teir Shebiksav, the Bible of Chabad, it's every word chosen with precision and lending itself to a wealth of interpretation and analysis. In this Sefer, the Alter Rebbe articulated in a very systematic manner the fundamental aspects of the Chabad school of thought, synthesizing the Nigla and the Nister, the revealed as well as the esoteric teachings of the Torah, integrating the rational and the mystical elements of Jewish thought, harmonizing the body and soul dimensions of Yiddishkeit into a unified, comprehensive blueprint for life. As early as 1792, handwritten copies of essays and discourses, which eventually made up the Sefer Atanya, began to circulate among the Hasidim. There was a great demand for copies of this work, which was still a manuscript form, it was not printed yet. But throughout the years, lots of mistakes made their way into the text. In addition to normal mistakes that happen frequently when things are 
being copied in a manuscript fashion, a group of zealous opponents contrived to introduce certain passages into the book and make certain other forgeries which would raise major questions and doubts and fundamental issues of faith of Jewish Amunah. So the B'shnei Zalman finally, after years, consented to have the Tanya printed, but with two conditions. A, the printed edition must have the approbations, the haskamas of Rabbi Zusha of Anipali and Rabbi Yehuda Leib HaKoyen, both of them disciples of the Magid and the author's senior colleagues. B, the Sefer must appear anonymously. On the 20th of Kislev, 5557, Corresponding to December 1796, the first printed edition of the Tanya came off the Slavita printing presses. Thus, we presently are commemorating the bicentennial anniversary of the first publication of the Tanya. Now, the first edition numbered 15,000 copies. In the following year, a second printing with 5,000 copies. A year later, a third printing with 20,000 copies came of the printing press. Thereafter, new reprints of the latter edition appeared frequently as the demand for this Chabad classic continued to grow. Up to date, more than 4,000 editions of the Tanya have been published. In 1798, two years after the publication of the Tanya and a year after the passing of the Vilna Gaon, who passed away, by the way, on Sukkot, 1797, the opponents of the Alter Rebbe resorted to their last chance to stifle the spreading of Hasidus. What did they do? They informed the Tsarist government that Rabbi Zalman was betraying the monarchy. The accusations brought forth against Rabbi Zalman consisted primarily of two aspects. Firstly, the Alter Rebbe was collecting and sending large funds of money to Eretz Yisrael to support the Jews of the Holy Land, which were under Turkish rule at the time. Now, Russia had been at war with Turkey from 1787 through 1792 and relentlessly continued to press towards the Mediterranean. Hence, Shepshnei Zalman was accused of betraying his country by sending funds to a hostile foreign power. But this accusation against Shepshnei Zalman's illegal political activity was coupled with accusation of the Alter Rebbe's illegal doctrines. A primary example of this was the concept of royalty. In Shepshnei Zalman's teachings, his opponents accused him the attribute of malchus, of regality, of aristocracy, is not an independent attribute per se, but rather an outlet of the higher spheres, of the higher spheres, the higher attributes. Consequently, malchus in the teachings of the Alter Rebbe, they claimed, was the last and least significant of the ten spheros. In other words, it was charged that this doctrine tended to undermine the royal status and authority of the Tsar, and therefore meant that Alter Rebbe in some way or another was literally rebelling against the Tsar and the Russian government. As a result of this, Alter Rebbe was arrested the day after Sukkot 1798. A black carriage, one usually reserved for dangerous rebels, pulled up in front of his home. 
the prisoner was ordered into the carriage and pulled away under a heavy, heavy armed guard. It headed for St. Petersburg, where the Alter Rebbe was imprisoned. For 52 days, he was held in the Peter Paul Fortress in Petersburg. In a very difficult, difficult state. An interesting story is told about the time of his imprisonment. Among the Altarebbe's interrogators was a government minister who possessed broad knowledge of the Chumash, the Tanakh, and general Jewish studies. On one occasion, he asks the Rebbe to explain the Pasuk and Bereshis, where it says, in Perig Gimel, Pasuk Tess, Vayikra Hashem Aleikim Adam Vayoymer Lai Ayaka. Hashem called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? Did Hashem not know? The minister asked where Adam was. So the B'shnei Zalman presented the classic explanation offered by the commentaries. The question, Where are you, Ayaka, they explained, was merely a conversation opener on the part of Hashem who did not wish to unnerve Adam by immediately confronting him with his wrongdoing. What Rashi says, I already know, said the minister. Because Rashi is the one who says this interpretation. I wish to hear how the Rebbe understands the verse. Do you believe that the Torah is eternal, asks the Rebbe? That it's every word applies to every individual under all conditions at all times? Yes, replied the minister. Rabbi Zalman was extremely gratified to hear this. The Tsar's minister had basically affirmed a major principle which lies at the basis of the teachings of Rabbi Yisrael Boshemtiv, the very teachings and ideology for, he which, for which he was standing trial. Where are you? Ayeka explained the Rebbe, is Hashem's perpetual call to every human being living on the face of this earth. Where are you in the world? What have you accomplished? You have been granted a certain number of days, hours, minutes, energies, faculties, resources in which to fulfill your mission in life. You have lived so many years and so many days. The Altarebbe spelled out the exact age of the minister. Where are you? What have you attained? Ayaka is a question that Hashem puts to every single human being throughout his entire life. It's the most important and essential existential question. Ayaka. Vubistu. Dr. said. Where are you? Are you fulfilling the purpose of your soul's descent on earth? Following a long and difficult trial, Valterebbe was found innocent of the charges and liberated on Yutas Kislev, the 19th day of Kislev of that same year. The Hasidic movement was also officially sanctioned by the authorities and permitted to carry on its practices as before. The news of Rabbi Shneir Zalman's release electrified the Jewish community. The joy of the Hasidim was boundless. That day was established as the Chagagayula, the festival of liberation. And it's annually celebrated among the Hasidim to this very day. However, 
As a consequence of further accusations, Rabbi Shnei Zalman was once again summoned to Petersburg two years later, the day after Sukkis of the year 1800, and again placed under arrest, although in a milder form than in the previous occasion. After a long, stretched-out trial, he was finally once again liberated. After spending ten and a half months in Petersburg, the Alter Rebbe left the capital, but he did not returned to his home in Liazhna, rather he relocated to Liadi. Here the Alter Rebbe spent the remainder of his life more than a decade and thus became known as the Rav of Liadi. After Ibshnei Zalman finally began to experience relief from his opponents from the non-Hasidic world, a bitter conflict against him ensued within the Hasidic world which disturbed him very, very deeply. The conflict which was led primarily by Rabbi Avram of Kalisk and later also by Rabbi Baruch of Mezhebush was directed mainly towards the intellectual dimension which characterized the Chabad doctrine. Rabbi Avram felt that the divine truths can be experienced only via instruments of faith and transcendence. The intellect compromises the integrity and sanctity of the concept. But the Al-Tarebbe insisted that the divine truths, that the realities of spirituality and godliness must be grasped via the intellectual, cognitive faculties as well. Hence the name of his brand of Hasidism, Chabad. Chabad is an acronym of three words, Chachma, Bina, Das, Exception, conceptualization and application, which are the three cognitive attributes which the Alter Rebbe so emphasized and insisted on. The Alter Rebbe felt that communicating and grasping these concepts with one's intellect will not compromise their integrity and their spiritual vitality and truth, but on the contrary, the only way they can truly permeate and penetrate the human reality and become part and parcel of the human condition is only if they are processed via the most powerful and internal faculties that make man man, which is his Chabad, his Chachma Bina and Das. Walter Rebbe was deeply grieved by this rift and worked relentlessly to restore unity within the Hasidic community. But the Alter Rebbe was not destined to end his life in peace. In 1812, Napoleon invaded Russia. The Alter Rebbe actively supported the Tsar during the Napoleonic, during the wars against Napoleon, both on the celestial level, intervening on high for a Russian victory, and also by down-to-earth method to the extent that the Alter Rebbe sent one of his great Hasidim, Reb Moshe Meislish was his name, to become a spy in the French high command for the Russian army. Reb Shnei Zalman was of the opinion that while Napoleon's plans for emancipation of the Jewish community might bring tranquility and physical joy and rest to the Jews from the harsh Zara's decrees and improve the community's material conditions, it would be but a glittering veneer of forced assimilation and spiritual genocide. 
Interestingly, the Rebbe's contributions to the Russia, Russia's victory was recognized by the Tsar who awarded the Alter Rebbe and his progeny the status of an honorable citizen for all generations. Five generations of Chabad Rebbe's were to make use of this special standing in their work on behalf of Russian jury. So in this year, 1812, when Napoleon invaded Russia, the Alter Rebbe was confronted with a serious dilemma. The route of the French army and invasion led through White Russia, where the Alter Rebbe lived. So he was forced to flee with his family and many of his students and the disciples. When the French armies approached Liadi in August 1812, he hastily immediately escaped the city Liadi, as mentioned, leaving with his family, with his Hasidim, leaving everything behind. For some five months, the Alter Rebbe and his family and students suffered the hardships of the road in a terrible, unusually cold winter. On the 12th of Tavis that year, the Alter Rebbe arrived in the village of Piena, Kursk province. There he succumbed to a severe illness, which he contracted on the, in the final stages of his faithful journey. His condition was worsening from day to day. At the termination of Shabbos Parshish Shmois, the 23rd day of Tevis, Ibshneir Zalman Davin Maiv recited the Havdalah. He then requested pen and paper and composed a very brief but profound mystical letter containing some of the deepest ideas of his Chabad philosophy. A few minutes after, he penned this powerful message. Rabbi Zalman was finally granted relief from his weary sojourn on earth as Rabbi Zalman's soul ascended on high. On Mitzayi Shabbos, Parsha Shmais, the 24th day of Tevis, in the year 5573 of creation, or 1812, at 10.30 p.m., Heaven triumphed over earth as the neshama of the spiritual giant and true man of God, Rabbi Zalman of Liadi, departed its earthly embodiment and returned to its maker. His body was taken to the town of Haditz in the district of Paltava, where he was laid to rest and is interred to this very day. Rabbi Zalman was one of the greatest Jewish personalities of his time. A man who literally mastered and integrated all fields of Torah thought, while possessing as well great knowledge in many other disciplines. A prolific writer and extraordinary orator, endowed with an exceptional ability for organization and systemization. Rabbi Zalman was a born aristocrat and leader, a superb disciplinarian, a charismatic visionary possessing nevertheless a unique talent for concrete implementation. A zealous mystic and brilliant musical composer he was, and perhaps the most significant of all.
The Pshnei Zalman was a heart on fire, burning like a furnace with overwhelming love towards his people, his God, and his Taita. In every one of the above-mentioned fields, the Altarebbe authored numerous works and volumes which are studied till today, the world over. Now we proceed with the Tanya. The author called this work by three distinct names. Each of these names characterizes the book in its own way. These names are one, Lakute Amarim, a compilation of teachings. Two, Tanya, which is a title given after the initial word of the Sefer, quoting a Brisa in the Talmud. This title is actually the most commonly used today. It's known as the Tanya. Three, Sefer Shalbeninim, Book of the Intermediates, so-called after the type of personality on which the Sefer centers attention, that is, the intermediate type whose moral position is not the tzaddik, the perfectly righteous individual, also not the rasha, the wicked man. This is the benini, the intermediate man, who is the central character and feature of the Alter Rebbe Sefer Atanya. The standard, complete editions of this work include the following five parts, each of which is, each of which is an independent treatise. Part one, Lukute Amarim, Tanya, Sefer Shalbeninim, comprising a foreword and 53 chapters. Part two, Shar Hayichud Vahamunah, which means portal of unity and faith with a foreword and 12 chapters. Part 3, Igeres HaTshuva, which means epistle of repentance with 12 chapters. Part 4, Igeres HaKadosh, sacred epistle with 32 sections. Part 5, Kuntris Acherayin, which means the latest treatise. So this these are the five sections of the Tanya. We will, of course, begin with the first section of the Tanya, as mentioned, called Adalukote Amarim, Sefer Shalbeninim, or Tanya. We'll commence with learning the Sharablat, the title page of the Tanya, for two reasons. A, unlike many other title pages, this one was written by the author himself. And B, the title page defines the nature and function of this book. The title page is printed in the beginning of the book. In the editions that you're using presently, it's on page 11 in the Roman numerals. Let's read inside. Sefer Lekute Amarim Chelek Rishen. This is the Sefer Lekute Amarim, a compilation of teachings, part one. Hanikra Bishem Sefer Shalbenunim. Entitled, The Book of the Ordinary Men, of the Intermediates. The Altarebbe is saying that this is not a book about or for extraordinary men. Rather, its primary focus is on the ordinary man. The Benini, which serves as the central character 
of this fascinating book is not the man who is holy, spiritual, godly, and saintly. He is not the individual who eradicated from himself every iota of evil. He is not that person who metamorphosized his entire identity and character. The Bainini, as will be explained later on in great detail, is rather that human being who possesses a duality in his life. He is the man who experiences a deep conflict in his psyche, a battle between an egotistical identity and a transcendental identity. It is he that this Sefer attempts to address, to guide him and direct him in his trials and tribulations, in his ups and downs, times of ecstasy and times of depression, to allow him to keep his head high above the water and fulfill his mission and destiny on earth. The Altarebbe continues that this safer of ordinary men is Malukat mipisvarim o mipisayfrim kedayshe elyon nishmasam eidin. It is compiled from sacred books and from teachers of heavenly saintliness whose souls are in Aden. The Alter Rebbe is saying that this Sefer is collected from the Svarim of Torah, beginning of course with the Tanakh, the Talmud, the Midrash, and all of Torah literature of subsequent generations, as well as Mipi Seferim from teachers. Hasidic tradition understands books, Mipi Svarim, as a reference specifically to the works of the 12th century great sage codifier and philosopher Reb Moshe ben Maimon the Rambam, as well as the works of the great mystics, sages and rabbis of the 16th century, the Arizal Reb Yitzchak Luria from Tzvas, the Maharal Rabbi Yehuda Leva from Prague, and the Shalah Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz with the words Mipi Seifrim from teachers, the author is referring specifically to the founder of the Hasidic movement, the Balsamtiv, as well as his pupil and disciple, the Magid of Mizrich. Miyusad al Pasik Ikarev Elecha Adavar Ma'id Bifichov Vavchalasaisa. This Sefer, Shalbainanim, is based upon the Pasuk Ikare Velech. There's a Pasuk Ikare Velech Adavar Ma'id, which means that this thing, this matter is very near to you in your mouth, in your heart, so that you may do it. What do we mean that the Sefer is based on this verse? Levayir hate explaining clearly how it is exceedingly near in the long, shorter way. Moshe Rabbeinu talks to the Jewish people in Parshish Nitzavim and Perik Lamed, Pasekid Aleph and further, and he says, and I quote, Ki ha-mitzvah ha-zais ha-shiranaychi mitzavcha ayayim lo'yni fleisi mimcha v'loyrechaiki. For this commandment that I command you today is not hidden from you and it is not distant. 
It is not in heaven for you to say, who can ascend to the heaven for us and take it for us so that we can listen to it and perform it. Nor is it across the sea for you to say, who can cross to the other side of the sea for us, take it for us, so that we can listen to it and perform it. Rather, the matter is very near to you, in your mouth and your heart, to perform it. So the Alter Rebbe says, the Sefer is coming to explain, its primary function is to clarify, how indeed can we say that it's exceedingly near to you, that it's in your mouth, and in your heart to perform it. What is the problem? What is the problem with understanding this Pasuk? On the most basic level, the Torah and the Mitzvahs, which is what Moshe Rabbeinu was talking about, are the Creator's blueprint for creation. They detail the exact manner in which Hashem means life to be lived, so that His purpose in creation should be fulfilled. But this life of Teir and Mitzvahs, for a human being to live his life and every aspect of it in accordance with the blueprint of Teir and Mitzvahs is extremely difficult. And the question comes to mind, is it indeed a physical, a feasible goal? Can the ordinary every man realistically be expected to conduct the every act of his life Every word, every activity, every thought of his life should be in accordance with the Torah's most demanding directives. Well, the Torah itself is quite clear on that matter. Moshe Rabbeinu says, it's not across the sea, it's not in heaven, it's It's exceedingly near to you. In other words, Torah is saying that a Torah, a Torah true existence is not an abstract ideal, is not a lofty endeavor, is not an unrealistic mission, it's not a point of reference to strive forward, but between you and I, we know that it's not real. Rather, it's something practical and it's an attainable goal. And the question is, how? That's on the most basic, most basic problem with this Pasuk, In addition to that, however, there's something deeper that plagues every honest thinking and searching person who comes in contact with Yiddishkeit, with Taira Mitzvahs. When Moshe Rabbeinu comes to us and says, this doctrine, this Taira that I have given to you from Hashem in the desert, this Taira is not Bashamayim, it's not in heaven, it's not Me'evaliyah, it's not across the sea. It's karavelecha, ma'ait. It's something which is very near to you. What Maisha is implying is that Torah and mitzvahs is something that is near, relevant, and intimately close to the person's life. And anyone who ever thought about this knows that the obvious question is that at some level, 
It doesn't seem to be so. When we ponder the nature of the spiritual truths and values that the Torah endeavors to impress upon our life, we come to ask the question, after everything said and done, is the Torah and Mitzvah a set of premises and rules which is superimposed upon us, subjugating our singular identities to an alien and remote doctrine? Or are they true expressions of our real selves? Does the Torah demand from the Jewish individual to deny his intrinsic characteristics and feelings, to repress his natural disposition, to ignore his innermost passions? Can the absolutes of Yiddishkeit in one word become real? Can they become truly real? Moshe Rabbeinu says, yeah. And immediately we wonder, is that indeed so we know ourselves? Godliness, spirituality, Yiddishkeit, doesn't seem to be what we are naturally all about. We are physical, for mortal, finite men. We are attracted and we define ourselves by our physical needs, by our physical pleasures, sometimes by things that are more sophisticated, more transcendental. But after everything said and done, our lives do not seem to be godly. Torah and mitzvahs comes and introduces a new element into our life. So the question is, does a Jew have to live his entire life, ultimately in the depth of his heart, feel that this is not who I am? I'm resigning myself, I'm subjugating myself, I'm being subservient to ultimately a remote doctrine which is not the real me, or it can become karevelech. It can become something that one can really celebrate at every moment of his life. It can become karevelech. It can become something that one can really celebrate at every moment of his life. Yeshaya Anavi laments in uh, Perik of Tess and Pasadikid Gimel, he says, Vayoymer Hashem, Yan ki nigash ha'am hazeh b'fiv, O v'svasov kibduni v'libay richak mimeni, V'tihi yirasam oisi mitzvahs anoshim ilumada. Hashem complains and he says, Inasmuch as this people has drawn close with its mouth and its lips, It has indeed honored me, Yet it has distanced Distanced its heart from me. Their fear of me is like rote learning of human commandments. There can be a Jew who grew up in a home where Torah was studied and mitzvahs were performed and observed. But nevertheless, ultimately it's mitzvahs anashim alamada. The fear of Hashem, the relationship to godliness, to spirituality, is done out of rote. And there are many, many levels and layers and facets, every individual according to who he or she is, background, affiliation, level of observance, every person according to their own personality. The Altarebbe attempts in a thorough and honest manner to describe how Teirah Mitzvah is Karav Ma'id. How a person can have an intimate and close relationship with godliness in a very real, internal, honest way. Yes, I understand you. I want to repeat your question. You're asking, why do we have to interpret the Pasuket as denoting that Torah and Mitzvahs 
are indeed relevant and intimately close with the human condition and experience, why can't we just interpret interpret the Pasuk simply that that it's very near to you to actually perform Torah mitzvahs on a practical level, on a concrete level, to do mitzvahs? Yeah, it's a very good question. You would be right if the Pasuk would delete the word Belovavcha. If the Pasuk would say, That would mean that this matter of Torah, this mitzvah hazayz, this matter, is very exceedingly near to you, in your mouth, so that you may perform it. But the Pasuk adds the word, In your mouth and in your heart. Which means that the Torah is teaching us over here. That it is karav ma'ait. That Torah is karav ma'ait. Torah is very near to you, not only in your mouth, and that you may implement it and do it, but rather the levavcha in your heart. It's very close to your heart, which means that Torah and mitzvahs can permeate and penetrate one's inner emotions, feelings, attitudes, one's heart. Not just that it's easy to perform Every day, Torah and mitzvahs, as a result of acceptance of the divine yoke, whether you like it or you dislike it, whether you celebrate it or you don't celebrate it, whether you feel for it or you don't feel for it. Much more than that. Belovavcha means that it becomes part of who I am. It becomes part of my heart. The human being can develop a deep internal feeling towards it. He can really love it. And over here is the question. May if you say, that a human being should perform Torah mitzvahs in a robotic fashion. He should just go ahead and do it. We can perhaps maybe understand why it's karavelacha. Because you just go ahead and you do it. This is what your creator wants, so you go and you perform it. But belavavcha means that it becomes part of your character, of your identity. And naturally, it doesn't seem to be so. Torah mitzvahs is not part of who we are. Materialism is what materialism, our wants and desires towards materialism, seems to be part of our real character. No one is going to say that the fact that you desire to eat or to sleep is superimposed upon your character. The fact that now, right now, you're going to eat dinner or breakfast or whatever it is, is something that's alien to you, that is added to your character, that has been imposed upon you. But the Yiddishkeit, and all of its facets and details and many, de- and many aspects seems often, yes, to be remote and alien from who we naturally are. And this is what Al-Tarebbe is coming to address. To explain very well, Eichu Karav And by the way, when we understand this, The other problem with Karav Ma'id is also answered. Even on the most basic level of interpretation, as you suggested we should interpret, that Karav Ma'id means that the human being can live a life of Torah and Mitzvahs. Even that's very difficult to understand. How is it Karav Ma'id? It seems to be often a goal that cannot be reached. That every nuance of your life 
should be consistent with the blueprint of Taina is something which apparently is not curve mind. It's quite difficult. It's pretty tough and hard. So can you say that it's very easy, it's exceedingly near to you to perform Torah and mitzvahs that every iota of your life should be absolutely consistent with the Shulchan Aruch? Only when the human being learns how Torah and mitzvahs is part of his intimate self, only when he learns how to love it and celebrate it, how to really create a bond, a, a connection between his psyche and character and the Torah, then it's Karavelech also on the practical and concrete level. Then he can actually attain the goal of a living from day to day, from moment to moment, based on the blueprint of the Creator, which is HaMitzvah Zeus, Torah Mitzvah. It's a very good question. You're asking that ki ha-mitzvah hazayis that Moshe Rabbeinu says over here is apparently referring to the mitzvah of tshuva, which he discusses in the previous pesukim. Versus, I was explaining that ha-mitzvah hazayis refers to the general concept of Torah mitzvahs. So, indeed, the commentators on this pasuk bring two interpretations, two possible interpretations, Ramban, Kleyakar, and Mormofarshim, bring two, two ways of either interpreting HaMitzvah HaZais on the entire Torah, or interpreting it specifically referring to the Mitzvah of Tshuva. It's interesting, in the Abar Benel, on his commentary on this Pasuk, he interprets it on Tshuva, and afterwards he continues and he says, V'amnam chazal bidvarim rabbah, that our sages in Medrash Rabbah, Parshas Dvar and Parsha Ches Piskazayan, interpret this Pasuk as referring to the entire spectrum of Tehra Mitzvahs. I would just like to add that even if one interprets Kea Mitzvah Hazais as referring to the Mitzvah of Tshuva, of return of repentance, repentance and Tshuva ultimately encompasses the entire Tehra Mitzvahs because Tshuva is a general Mitzvah where one returns to Hashem. So if one can learn how the mitzvah of tshuva is karavelecha, one can also come to learn how the general spectrum and reality of Tehran mitzvahs is karavelecha. Well, the Rebbe continues that the Tanya was written to explain how it's karav ma'it b'derech arucha uktsar in the long, shorter way. What does he mean with these words? He's referring to an interesting episode that is related in Gemara. The Gemara in Erevin, Dafran Gimel Amit Beis, tells the story about Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya says that once in my life a child got the better of me. What happened? Once I was traveling and I met a child at a crossroads. I asked the child, which way to the city? He answered, This way is short and long. And this way is long and short. Which way would you take? The long and short way? Or the short and long way? Well, let's see what Rabbi Yeshua did. What he did was, It sounded to him much more sensible to take 
The short and long way. Short is the first word in the statement of, in the sentence of the child. So he took that way. But soon I reached the city. But when I reached the city, I found my approach obstructed by gardens and orchards. So what did I do? I went back. I retracted my steps. I told the child, my son, did you not tell me that this is the short way? Did I not tell you that it is the long way? I told you that is the short way. But I also told you it's the long way. I kissed him on his head. And I told him, Ashreichem Yisrael, how fortunate are you Jewish people. Shakulchem chachamim gdeilchem That you are all so wise from the oldest to the youngest. From the senior citizens to the young little Yiddish kindalach, little children. So a child is telling Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya when he embarks on a journey towards a city that there are two ways. There's a derech tzarev arucha, there's the short, longer way, and there's a derech arucha tzarev, there's the long, shorter way. What's the difference? The long, the short, longer way is very short. You would not have to walk long and you approach the city you're there. But ultimately it's long. Because your path is obstructed and blocked by orchards, by obstacles, and you can't, you cannot enter the city. The other road is derech arucha tzarev, is the long, shorter way, which is very long, and you have to walk and walk, and you do not see the city. The walking is very long, but once you reach, it's short. You can immediately enter the portals, the gates, the doors of the city, and you're inside. Comes down to Rebbe and he says, In the Tanya, I would like to attempt to explain how Torah and Mitzvah is karav ma'it. It's very close to you in the long, shorter way. You see, the questions I raised earlier to you can be answered in a short, longer way. When a Jew comes to a friend of his, to his teacher, to his master, to his rabbi, to his parents, and he laments, he complains, that I do not feel that Yiddishkeit is real to me. I do not feel it's it's part of my life. I do not feel that Hashem, that his mitzvahs, that Shabbos, that Tefillin, Mezuzah, Tehidah, is part and parcel of real reality between you and I. What do you do? What do you do? It's a good question. And the question, can, I phrase it one way, but it can be asked in many, many of ways, and people, everyone asks it in one way or another. Because no one can escape this question. Everyone has a response to it, because this is what our relationship to Hashem is, what our relationship to our people, to Yiddishkeit is. So there is, to be sure, a, a short, longer way. There is a way of what's called instant inspiration. You say a beautiful story, a beautiful joke, a beautiful anecdote, a beautiful vart, and you inspire the person. You show him how beautiful Yiddishkeit is, how beautiful a mitzvah is, how beautiful this idea is, this concept. And he's on the road to the city of God. He's on the road to Irelikainu, and it's short, he reached it. He's inspired, he's overwhelmed, he's overtaken. You brought him to tears, to joy, to celebration. Problem is, it's short, but it's long. Why? Because what was not dealt with, with was the issue on its most basic Deep and fundamental level. It's like when someone is not feeling well, you take a Tylenol. A Tylenol can help, to, can help to remove the headache. And if it's only a headache, that's fine. But if it's something deeper, removing the symptoms is not really dealing with the illness itself. 
one has to probe deeper. So Derek Tzara would be explained this in a short, longer way. But the Rebbe said, I do not want to do it. The Tanya is presented in a long, shorter way. Long means it's a long road. It's a difficult safer that requires learning, thinking, contemplation, studying. Every single one can do it. Every word of the Tanya lends itself to every single person's mind and heart and consciousness. But it's a long way. It's a serious way. It's an honest way. It's a long journey. But Alter Rebbe says it's Ktsara. Ultimately, it's a short way. Why? Because when you get it, you'll really get it. When you have it, you'll have it. Derech Tzara Varuchi, you never really had it. You were overwhelmed. It was external ultimately. And therefore, constantly, there'll be new obstructions and new concealments. It did not permeate you. It did not penetrate you. When you, however, when you're dealing with a derech harucha oktara, you're dealing with a long road, it's winding, it's steep, it's tedious, it's sometimes as long as life itself, this road. It's full of ups and downs, setbacks and frustrations. It demands from a person commitment, honesty, intellectual devotion, really intellectual devotion and emotional devotion. But it's a road that leads a human being into the city of Hashem, making it a true, internal, honest, lifelong, fulfilling endeavor. That's the Derech Aruch Oktana. And Al Rebbe concludes last word, Be'ezer Hashem Yisbarach. With the aid of the Holy One, Blessed Be'i HaKadosh Baruch which means, of course, that the writing of the Tanya and fulfilling this task is being done with the aid of Hashem, Deeper, however, the Alter Rebbe is saying that ultimately, after everything said and done, one gains the greatest help and assistance and aid in, in, be able, in, in enabling his life to become connected with Hashem through Hashem himself, through HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which aids a person with his divine providence every moment and hour of his life. As mentioned before, the Alter Rebbe did not allow the Tanya to go to publishing, to be printed, until he received approbations of two of his senior colleagues and disciples of the Magid, Rabbi Zushav Anipol and Rabbi Yehuda Leib HaKohen. He sent the manuscript of the Tanya with two emissaries to them. They both lived in a city called Anipoli to review the text and to write their askama, to write their approbation. The story is told that the emissaries arrived to Annapoli in the evening. And they had two copies of the manuscript. One copy they presented to Rabbi Yehuda Leib. And one copy they presented to Rabbi Zusha. Rabbi Yehuda Leib began reading the text of the Tanya. One hour, two hours, a few hours. And midnight he could not contain himself. He was, he was simply overwhelmed and uh, entered such a state of ecstasy and joy that he decided that he has to run to his colleague Rebzusha in the middle of the night and wake him up and show him what's going on. What's going on in the safe. So it's 12 midnight or 1 midnight and Yehudalei runs out of his home and Anipali was a small town but it had two sides and there was a bridge connecting it. Yehudalei lived on one side Rebzusha lived on the other side. So he came running over the bridge to wake up Rebzusha and to show him the safe. Rebzusha also started to read the manuscript. And he also began reading it in an hour, hour, another hour, and it came midnight, and his heart went on fire, and he decided he has to go awake with Yehuda Leibah and show him the manuscript. So he ran out of his house, and at some point they both met in the middle of the road, 
both holding the manuscript of Tanya. And they say that the whole Anipoli went aflame, went on fire. Have a good day and a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.